This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi. And welcome to Self Work. I'm so glad you've joined me today. We're going to be talking about something, of course, very serious. We're talking about when someone you love dies by suicide. As a clinical psychologist for over 25 years, I've sadly worked with many people who are trying to handle the tragedy of suicide. We're going to talk in general about the specific type of grief one experiences after a suicide some of the reasons why people die by suicide will be quoting an article from Psychology Today. We'll talk about the difference between saying someone committed suicide and someone died by suicide. There's also the problem if you found the person that you love and they had died by their own hand, what kind of effect that has on you. You can develop PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we're going to talk a little bit about well-researched, and evidence-based treatment for PTSD. In self-work, I'm trying to reach out to those of you who perhaps never would have talked to a psychologist, but obviously if you're handling something like this in your life, it's very difficult and it takes a long time. The email from a listener today, which we have at the end of every podcast, is a listener who's trying to cope with a mom who has a severe personality disorder. But first and foremost, I want to say that anyone who is suicidal, who may be listening to this, can receive immediate help by logging on to suicide.org or by calling 1-800-SUICIDE. Suicide is preventable, and you can get help. So please visit suicide.org or call 1-800-784-2433 or 1-800-SUICIDE immediately. Now we'll move on to talk about something that's hard to talk about, but very, very important. Someone you love has taken their own life. The pain feels unbearable. Someone you love chose to end their life. Maybe they left you a note, maybe they didn't. Maybe you knew they were in agony, struggling with inner demons or with harsh realities of severe physical or mental illness, or maybe you didn't. You don't want to hate them. You love them. You want to hate what they did or wish there had been another way. And you're left to clean up whatever they left behind. I mean that in a physical way, as well as a social way, an emotional way, a parenting way. Maybe they shot themselves in the bathroom or on the deck. Maybe they Googled how to do it without a mess and you know that it was planned. Maybe it was impulsive. Maybe they hung themselves in their bedroom. Maybe they accidentally killed themselves through experimentation with drugs. And if you found them, you have to deal with the memory. You could have nightmares or flashbacks. That's a form of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And we're going to talk later about specific treatments for those things. Even people whose loved ones die unexpectedly have to deal with anger. But it's not just anger. It's appalling sadness. If they were very ill, there can be a relief that your loved one's struggle with whatever was plaguing them is over. However, the relief is for them, 
not for you. You still have to put one foot in front of the other. You have to learn to live without them. You have to help children deal with the loss and try to understand that the decision of dying by suicide was not a rejection or reaction to them. However, a common feeling is, was I not important enough to them? Did they not feel that we could face things together? Could I have done anything else? It's vital to work through these feelings, to try to fully answer those questions, however, knowing that they're the only one that really has the answer to the questions. You have to come up with the best responses you possibly can in your own mind. You have to know that you were important, your children were important, their children were important. You could not have done anything else. He or she could not face whatever it was, not anymore. They didn't tell you. If they had, you would have done everything you could to help them. Perhaps they had been suicidal before, but had told you, and you had done exactly that. This time, they kept it secret. We've mentioned before, when children are involved, and if you have children and your spouse kills themselves, the helplessness you feel is so potent. You don't know how they're going to understand. You'll watch them over years, coping with the reality that life was just too hard for their dad or mom. They will wonder about themselves. It makes the potential of intentionally ending life much more real, and that's hard to watch. So what do you do? The answer is certainly not simple. In Psychology Today, Dr. Alex Lickerman gives us reasons why people commit suicide, and I've given you the link in the show notes to this article. He cites six reasons for suicide. The major one is depression, and that's reiterated by the website suicide.org. There is psychosis, When you hear voices that tell you to kill yourself, it can be a cry for help. Again, probably in this instance, suicide was attempted before and it was called a cry for help and this time it went too far. It can be an impulsive act, an act of anger, an act of revenge, an act meant to punish others. It can be a philosophic decision to die, as in someone who has an illness that they know will take away their physical capability or their mental capability, and they cannot face it. Or, the sixth reason is making a mistake, such as not realizing what taking a bottle of Tylenol will do to your body. I have seen all of these reasons for suicide in my own practice. Either my own patients or family members of my own patients And none of these make it any easier if you understand the reason. But it does give it a context. Having no clue why someone committed suicide is really, really difficult. And of course, if there was no note or anything like that, you have to deal with confusion and agitation of that. But I would add a seventh reason to his list, that there are secrets that might have been kept. Maybe those secrets have come to light If you remember, after the Ashley Madison list came out, there were several people who committed suicide rather than face the shame that they felt. This could be true in financial fraud or criminal acts, sexual addictions, those kinds of things. What I have seen again in my practice 
is that if you can have compassion for the reason, even though the choice has changed your life unalterably, you can travel there in your heart. You can try to accept what your loved one's inner world was whispering to them or maybe screaming at them. But it's a misery like no other. Many of you have listened to my podcast on perfectly hidden depression, and I've talked with many people, interviewees, who've responded to my questionnaire or my podcasts and blog posts about a depression that can be hidden by a persona of perfectionism, extreme responsibility and success, avoidance of painful emotions. And many of the people that I interviewed have wanted to kill themselves, and in fact, that's what brought them into therapy finally. But they're the very people who you hear kill themselves, and no one could possibly have known that they were even struggling with depression. If you're interested in my podcast on perfectly hidden depression, they're interspersed throughout. It begins in three and four. Then I believe it's 20, 21, or 21 and 22. And then there's one at 30 and 31, I think. But they're clearly labeled. And again, it's hard with these people to have compassion for the reason because you don't understand What happened? They seemed fine. They weren't psychotic. They weren't depressed or they didn't look depressed. They weren't impulsive people. They weren't angry people. It's a huge problem. So you'll notice that in the title, I use the term died by suicide because in trying to address the stigma of mental illness, and of course mental illness is often a factor in suicide, many of the people who are advocating for less stigma have said, Don't say committed suicide. One, it's not accurate, and it's very hurtful to those who have attempted, as well as to suicide survivors. You commit a crime. So they ask us to please start using the term died by suicide. Even the change in terminology can change someone's mind about feeling suicidal, where they don't feel so much shame about it, and they might just seek treatment. I will admit to you, I've written posts that use the term commit suicide. I've said commit suicide for many years, and this was a revelation to me that I should look at my own attitude and how I might actually be promoting some kind of stigma without meaning to. Of course, the huge task is to grieve. And one minute rolls into the next. You just get through one more day. What I've learned about grief is that grief comes in waves It recedes, and then it washes over you again, dragging you into blackness. Then it recedes once more, kind of like an ocean. When you think about standing at the ocean and it's high tide, you feel like it's pulling you under. But gradually the waves get less strong and less strong. And then you're hit by a wave that feels even stronger than the first one. That's the way grief is. Grieving over suicide can feel even more complicated. My own life has been touched by suicide. I have written about losing patients to suicide, and I will include that link in the show notes. I lost a friend in high school as well, and I've had the honor of working with many who are trudging their way through the deep ache left behind. As hard as it is, I know that it can be done by spouses, by children, by parents, by friends. I may have used this analogy before in my 
other podcasts, but a patient eloquently described feelings after her sister's suicide. They had grown up in a very, very dysfunctional, abusive home. And although they were very different as people, they had each other's backs. So she said to me, after her sister's suicide, I always knew she and I were holding a rope. I would tug and she would tug back. We could get through anything. When she died by suicide, it's like she dropped her end. Now I tug on it and no one is there. I don't know how to go on living. Do I keep holding my end? Do I drop it? Do I put it away? Obviously, these questions are very difficult to answer. And those answers come only, in my experience, with time. You obviously have to be careful that your grief doesn't morph into a real clinical depression and you get stuck in your sadness or your anger or your fear. You might need to seek treatment if that happens. But there is a difference between grief and clinical depression. But now let's talk about another aspect. Perhaps you are the one who found your loved one or you walked in on the scene after someone else was already there. If you did, there's a chance that you'll develop post-traumatic stress disorder. That includes all kinds of symptoms, including flashbacks and nightmares, a lot of emotional instability around it, or actually emotional deadening, cognitive problems, avoidance of talking about it, or being hyper-focused on it, being hyper-aroused, easily startled. I'll have in the show notes also a link for the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. But let's get to the actual treatment for it, because I'm always talking about what you can do about things. And I want you to know that if you have depression, you have PTSD, you can get help. The National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder talks about very well-researched therapeutic techniques. Of course, they are therapeutic, so you have to go into therapy. But here's some of the ones that work. One they call prolonged exposure. And basically what this is, is talking about the trauma with your provider and doing some of the things you've avoided since the trauma. For example, one woman that I worked with had gone to the cemetery over and over again, but she had neglected doing the practical things that her husband had always done. She hadn't paid her taxes in a couple of years. She had let bills build up. When she did it, she discovered a lot of anger, which she'd been able to avoid. There are all kinds of things that this kind of just exposure to talking about it and its effect on you, its effect on other people you love, can be helpful. And usually the research shows that the more you talk, the better you'll feel. What this article calls cognitive processing therapy is about reframing the negative thoughts that you have about the trauma. You can do short writing assignments like if you feel a lot of guilt about it, how can you reframe that guilt? How can you think about it differently so that you begin to detach from it because it will only ruin and sabotage your own life? There's a very specific technique called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It actually involves calling a trauma to mind while paying attention to a back and forth movement or a sound, a light or a tone. And it begins to help you make connections 
with emotions or thoughts or experiences or your physical body that are important in healing from your trauma and trying to process it. I've been trained in EMDR, and it can be very effective. There are other things you can do with a therapist. I believe in people recalling as many details of the memory as possible, writing letters to the person who died by suicide, holding some sort of farewell ritual or anything like that to either honor the person you loved or to have the feeling that you're leaving the trauma in the past. Of course, there are also antidepressants that can be helpful to many people. This is especially important if your clinical depression is deepening and entrenching itself or your PTSD is getting worse. One of the things that adults tell me if they had a parent that committed suicide, that they lost both parents when that happened because the other parent was so emotionally overwhelmed or became very depressed or guilt-ridden or anxious when that occurred. And your children need you to stay engaged. Of course, you will grieve, but they can't have both parents die at the same time. So please know, if you have any kind of suicidal feelings yourself, you can get help and you can get treatment. If you know someone that you suspect is suicidal, or they tell you they're suicidal, it's not a secret to keep. It's too potent. Tell one of their family members. Tell someone who is their best friend. Pay attention. Because the suicide rate is increasing dramatically in our culture, in the United States, and internationally. I want to speak briefly, and I didn't say this in the introduction because I really hadn't thought of including it, but I have now. And I want to talk about if you're living with someone who has attempted suicide, what kinds of things need to happen? Obviously, you want them to seek the help and treatment they need in order for them to feel safe and secure. Whatever was their reason, whatever was their impulse, they need to address it, try to understand it, and heal. But there also needs to be a healing process in the relationship. They need to hear what it was like for you to know that they struggled like that and they didn't tell you or they didn't tell you clearly enough or that there are communication problems in your marriage or your partnership that need to be addressed because they did try to tell you and you didn't understand. This becomes a relationship issue and like any other can be very healing in that the relationship can grow. It's not a way anyone would choose to do it. So please find a therapist or a counselor that has experience working with people who have had this issue. Because you can heal also as a couple. By this time, there are probably very few of us who have not had someone that we've cared about die by suicide. So I hope these ideas have been helpful to you as you try to handle your own feelings about your loss and theirs. Today's email from a listener starts out, Thank you so much for your podcast related to parents with personality disorders. I'm fairly certain that my mother and father had undiagnosed personality disorders. My father committed suicide a few years ago. 
My mother and father were divorced, but my time spent with my father when I was young was marked with demeaning comments. I always thought my mother was the stable parent because she raised me, but in the last several years I've come to recognize narcissistic-type behaviors and personality disorder-type behaviors. I didn't speak to my mother for several months after her latest screaming tantrum. I saw a counselor to help me have a relationship with my mother, get an outside perspective of my response, and help me move forward. I'm planning to see my mother for a couple of days in November and starting to get anxious. Her neediness, insincerity, victim mentality, insults, over-the-top praise, anger outbursts and tantrums, and gushy love are all difficult for me to handle. Do you have any tips on how to not get pulled into her motions? I've done two podcasts on personality disorders. One is about coping with an emotionally abusive parent, and the other is on narcissism. So you might look for those if you're interested. So this was my answer. Hello, I'm so glad you've reached out. What you're trying to do first is very difficult. Please don't set yourself up in believing that you should be able to be in your mother's presence and somehow stay calm and collected around her all the time. Even if you do, she's likely, with the problems you describe, to switch to another tactic to reestablish what is familiar between the two of you. It may be important to realize that this behavior may not be intentional on her part, or it may be. I can't tell that from your email. So taking care of yourself will be hard to do. There are a couple of really good books out there. If it's narcissism, then Disarming the Narcissist gives great advice about trying to stay out of the emotional vortex of your mom. And that's really the key, staying rational, restating boundaries you may have set. For example, refusing to go over old emotional hurts or talk about certain topics that you have identified as inflammatory and you're just not going there. If she's experiencing more borderline features, then understanding the borderline mother provides a truly in-depth look, not only at her issues, but what may have been created in you as you tried to adjust and live with her. I'd highly recommend either book to read before you travel to see her. This is a terrifically difficult situation to handle as a child or an adult child. Somehow or another, we all yearn for that ideal parent. And when you have a parent that has a personality disorder, that is far from ideal. So seeking help in trying to understand their behavior, your response to it, and again, how to try at least to stay out of their manipulation and their own incredibly chaotic and sad way of living their life. And yet, they will always be your parent. And so that can be very difficult. Again, tying into our episode with suicide, suicide is more common with people, especially with borderline personality disorder. So that can be a double whammy. So again, if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or killing yourself or know someone who does, please don't discount them. Remember, there are many people who never have those thoughts. Never. Tell someone who will listen and help. There are crisis hotlines all over our country, community mental health clinics whose job it is to respond to emergencies, and free health clinics available for those in need. Here is the suicide.org hotline that is available 24 hours a day, 
2433 or 1-800-SUICIDE. And thanks for listening. You can reach me in all kinds of different ways. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. Please email me. I love to get your emails with questions and comments, ideas for the podcast, information about yourself as a listener. It really helps me to connect, and I want to connect with you. That's AskDrMargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, and it's confidential. And if you don't want me to mention your email on the air, then I won't, I promise. If you subscribe to my website, you receive a weekly newsletter that has both a weekly podcast and a weekly blog post, or I'd love it, of course, if you subscribe here. And what is just as meaningful, and there have been several of you in the month of November who have done this, so thank you so very much. It's very meaningful to me if you leave a rating or review wherever you listen. Podcasts get evaluated for how many ratings and reviews they have, so even though I really don't like thinking about numbers, ratings and reviews matter so that self-work continues to gain in listenership. It's nice for me to know that people are looking forward to the next episode. I've got all kinds of things set up, and we'll have an exciting announcement in the next podcast. So thanks again for listening. Please take care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.